you have a Bible, open to Colossians chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to use one of the ones there in the baskets or uh, just read on with the text that's printed in the handout. Just one brief word before we start our, our sermon in the liturgy today. Um, when we prayed our prayer of confession, then we used the, uh, uh, just that one line from Luke 18. It's the, uh, the prayer the tax collector prayed alongside a Pharisee when uh, the Pharisee used a lot of good words and... Uh, fancy jargon and sounded impressive, and then this tax collector, a sinner, um, just prayed a simple prayer, God be merciful to me, a sinner. It's encouragement for anybody who may feel unequipped to, um, to pray, knowing how to pray. You know, like sometimes the words around us and others' prayers are impressive or, or too tough to tackle. There's a place to learn how to pray, and using the Psalms is a great place to learn how to pray. Some of the time, there's just a place to be simple, not verbose, and concise like that. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Let me open us here with prayer now, and then we'll look to uh, Colossians. Father, we thank you that you have called us into your uh, wonderful, marvelous light, that you have redeemed us from our sin and reminded us of that redemption of your salvation over and over again throughout the history of your people that's recorded in your word by our gathering together every week for worship our personal time of prayer and devotion and reading your scripture. Father, will you refresh us, restore us, and equip us for all of life that we would know how to apply your word in our lives each and every moment. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Colossians is a book about growing in maturity in the Christian faith. Maturity is oftentimes idolized or misunderstood as being somehow distant somehow impressive, as I just mentioned, knowing the right things to say at the right time, that is wisdom. There is an element of maturity to that, but maturity can oftentimes be mistaken for an absence of love, an absence for affection, an absence of connection between human beings and certainly between God and human beings, or us and God. Paul's letter to the Colossian church is addressing some false teachings that had emerged in that place that were leading people away from the person of Jesus Christ, away from God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, away from a true, genuine knowledge of God that leads to transformed life and deeper, richer connections in the community of the church and in our communion with God. We started this series around the new year with a New Year's resolution to know God better and to apply that knowledge to every area of our lives. It comes from the prayer that Paul opens with, beginning of Colossians. If you're in chapter 3, turn back to chapter 1. I want to read this as a reminder of where we, come, where we were going. <coughs> Verse 9, he says, this is Paul praying for the Colossians. From the day we heard about you, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of God's will, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light." Paul is concerned that the Colossians understand that it is 
God himself who has qualified us for participation in the church. And here's why that's so central to understanding the Christian faith for them and for us. But because we are constantly in our culture and even in our community and even in our own heads bombarded with this lie that comes from the evil one that you are not good enough. You're not good enough. You're not smart enough. You're not this enough to be truly loved by God. It's a lie that Satan has sown and continues to sow in the heart and minds of believers because it's an effective lie. It's one that we, we think we should believe. We have this sense that we're not good enough. We know that we have fallen short. We confessed our sins earlier this, in the service because we know that we have fallen short. And so it's a lie that we, we think has an element of truth. It does have an element of truth. But the further truth of the gospel is that we're not qualified based on anything we do. The bar, larger truth of the gospel is that we have been qualified, qualified for the race, qualified for life, qualified for the things God has called us to, not by something that we have done, but by something that God has done for us. And that qualification is Jesus Christ in his perfect life. And then in his death, paying a penalty for our sins that we deserved and we know we deserve. And in that death and in his resurrection, Jesus has qualified us and assured us that our position with God, our relationship with God and with one another is secure when we are constantly failing and faltering. That is the heart of this message that Paul is preaching to the church in Colossians, preaching in the form of a written letter. And he's been driving this point home that we would know then what to do. And where we're going with the letter, Paul begins all of his letters. He begins with these truths that people need to hear oftentimes again and understand. And then he moves them to concrete on the ground application that we would know how to take these truths and put them into real action that is meaningful and significant. Now we've come to verse 17, chapter 3, verse 17 now. And it's the third in a series of instructions that Paul gives him. Let me read verse 17, and then I'm going to go back and read verses 15 through 17 to give some context. Verse 17 is simply this, And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Verse 15, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. When you pray, most of you probably close your prayers in the name of Jesus. In Colossians chapter 10, verse 31, Paul has a similar phrase here. You don't need to turn back with it. I'll read to you. So whatever you do, eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. The instructions are similar in that Paul wants us to understand that there's not a compartmentalized faith. It's not like subjects in school where I'll go to my math class now, I'll go to my religion class in a little bit, and then I'll go to my English class after that. 
The knowledge of God impacts every area of our life. And as uh, one scholar said, there's not one square inch in all of creation that God doesn't say this is mine. In a similar way, there's not one square inch, one portion of any of our life that God doesn't say, I made that, I know that you are mine. All of life is the goal here. And these two verses leading up to us, up to this all-encompassing instruction, are equipping, empowering, and informing how we're to apply the Word of God, our knowledge of God, into all of life and how it deepens our relationship with God and enables us to engage with one another, enter into relationships with one another in a deeper, more meaningful way, and also to press into the world around us without a fear, but with a confidence, without a cockiness, but a courage to say this gospel has something to offer those who think that it's foolishness. It transforms our life and gives us a mobility to move in as light to a world around us that wants to shut us in, box us in. You can have your place on Sunday, but it has no relevance on Monday. More and more, that's where our culture around us goes. But here's the The message of Colossians to us is that that is not the truth that comes from God. It is a lie that comes from the world around us. And when we apply this knowledge that God wants us to see his relevance, his pertinence, his his power in all of life, it will have a transformative effect not only in our own lives, but in the lives of others around us. Paul's saying, here's where it begins two things that need to enter into our lives and have the run of our lives that will then help us to apply all of this knowledge in our lives. Verse 15, he said, let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. Remember that word rules kind of sounds like uh, a a bit authoritarian, a a bit uh, um, uh, maybe distant. Sometimes we think of rules being a bit distant from us. But the word rule is connected again to that qualification, like for a race. And the word rule means that you have been qualified for the race. It's like the official saying, yes, you're in the bounds. You're you're not breaking the rules. Paul is saying with that, let the peace of Christ qualify you in your hearts. That work that Jesus has done on the cross, nailing your debt to the cross with him, has qualified you for the race, for this thing called life. But other things vie for the ruling of our hearts. We've asked the question, what gets you out of bed in the morning? That's probably something that has a ruling place in your heart. Or what keeps you from getting out of bed? What drives your performance or throttles it? What tells you there's no way you can do this or gives you confidence to take the shot to do those things? Verse 16 goes on. Let the word of God dwell in you richly. The word being this concept of logos in the Greek that's more than just words on a page or words spoken. It is the whole combination of all scripture fulfilled in this person and work of Jesus Christ. That we're to let God have the run of our house to live in our whole person 
That's what the word richly means. Richly is fully. Let the word of God live in your lives. Do you know the word? When we put these two things into our lives, we have two forces acting our, our life from the outside that gives us fuel for all the things in life that we do being in the name of Jesus. Now let's look. We're not going to look too much in detail at these things today, but we're just going to go one, two, three, and look first at what is what does it mean that this is all of life? Second, what does it mean that this is in the name of Jesus? And third, we're going to look at this interesting tag on. It feels a little bit awkward even to include it in the sermon. This giving thanks. Did you notice that three times he repeats that in these three verses? It always feels like a bit of a, a tag on, doesn't it? But I think, in fact, I know anytime you see repetition in Scripture, <coughs> and especially when you see things repeated three times, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Three is a significant number, and it's something that we should take notice of. So we need to look at that Thanksgiving at the end of, end of this. It's, it's a, a significant part of it. I want to start with a little bit of a, a, a revelation that I had about a year ago. I was reading a biography of Winston Churchill. Winston Churchill, of course, famous British prime minister during World War II, controversial figure. He was opinionated, a strong leader. He was rejected for the role of prime minister, time and time again because of his opinionated, strong personality. During the war, his strong leadership was deemed necessary and he eventually rose to power. His personality could be abrasive and yet effective in many ways. Part of the reason I read the book was because when President, when Donald Trump was elected president, I was kind of curious what makes those types of personalities attractive. Not personally uh, attracted to the personality, the character of President Trump. He has so many failings, and yet it's a complex, convoluted thing in our political system right now. Not going to get into that. Having read the biography of Churchill, I was, I was strengthened in my own personality. I was overconfident, maybe a bit cocky. I like to read biographies and emulate what's, what's admirable in other personalities and take note of what's not. Avoid those things. I was convicted somewhere along the way to go back and read a short book. It's a summary of, it's, it's a written address, a written version of a, an address that a Catholic priest named Henry Nowen wrote in addressing a group of priests and other ministers, I believe Protestant and Catholic, on what Christian leadership looks like. He titled the book, In the Name of Jesus. That phrase, in the name of Jesus, only occurs in the Bible in this one verse. Many places you hear in the name of God, in the name of other various people, but this verse is the only place where that phrase, in the name of Jesus, occurs. Henry Nouwen was famous when he decided to leave his position as a professor at Harvard University, having also served at Yale and for 20 years been one of the most impressive, sought-after figures in the Christian world. And he left that position at Harvard, and he felt called to go and serve as a priest to a community called Daybreak, where primarily, I think entirely, people with uh, mental handicaps, disabilities, lived on-site in residence. He served as the, the priest, the chaplain to that community. I think a fairly large community there, but I don't know the size. About a year and a half into this, he was asked to come and to address this group on Christian leadership. And he now recognized in his own heart and life, his own temptation, his own temptation to be great, to be impressive, to be admired. He had become consumed by it. He says at one point in the book that as he was growing older, he was recognizing that he was no closer in his relationship with Jesus Christ. In fact, he had grown farther away as he had become more relevant, more popular, and more powerful in his own life. 
It was a humble reading when I sat down to read this short book compared to the thousand-page biography of Winston Churchill. My cocksure confidence diminished and I was convicted in my heart to not follow the path of so many in the Christian church, but to pursue this path that now and promotes that is a path of humility. It's a path that he, looking to the example of the temptation of Jesus, identifies as three primary temptations in life following the three temptations that the devil tempted Jesus with in the wilderness after he had fasted for 40 days. The first one was to be relevant, the temptation to be relevant to others. The second one is the temptation to be popular. And the third one is the temptation to be powerful. If you want to go into detail in each of these three things, I highly recommend the book. It's, it's a very short read, convicting through and through. What I suggest is when we, apply, when we apply the knowledge of God in all of our lives, in everything we do, word and deed, and do it in the name of Jesus, it leads us first to a deeper affection and relationship with Jesus closeness to him. If you can't say that about your life, it's fair to ask the question, what's keeping me from that? Second, it leads us to a humble posture to engage the world around us, not as a mat to be walked upon, but with a confidence to enter in with a very different form of leadership than what the world promotes. The world promotes leadership that is full of self-promotion. If I don't promote myself, no one else will. If I don't do this for myself, if I don't have the perceived perception that other people think that I'm important, then I must not be important. But the dangers, the dangers of being relevant and popular and powerful ultimately lead us into a place of deep isolation from others. And isolation is a place of death. Isolation is a place of fear. Isolation is full of anxiety and envy. Isolation cannot sit and offer thanksgiving to God because it's always concerned with all kinds of needs around us, all kinds of pressing things that get in the way of our relationship with God and our relationship with one another. Jesus wants all of life. These two words here, logos and ergos, Logos, we've looked at already. It's not just words, what we say. It's our ideas and it's our thoughts. It's all of life. The Logos word and deeds works. It's all the things that we do. Jesus wants all of our life. And he's not satisfied until he gets it. How do we apply this? Where are the areas of life that we, we don't let Jesus into? Let me ask this question. Most of us come to Jesus and we say, we want to be a better person. Help us to be more disciplined in our work. Help us to be more generous in our relationship. Help us to be more faithful in this thing or that thing. What are the New Year's resolutions you made? Go to that list. What are those things? I just want to be a better person. I just want to do these things better. Now you have those, those things in mind. Now what are the things that really transform those areas of life? We set our disciplines. We establish new habits. We change who we want to be. We change what we do. But the thing that really changes us for the long term is when we are in relationship with others who we want to be more affectionate toward and close with. The things that satisfy us least in life are the things that look like the world promotes the most. Success, beauty, power, 
financial security. All these things, the more we get, the less we're satisfied with life. In all of these areas, more is never enough. You can say the same thing or similar thing about following the rules that Scripture lays out for us or any other set of rules. We think, if only I could follow the rules a little bit better, then I would be satisfied with my life. But have you ever experienced that? If only I followed the rules a little bit better, then I'm, full, then I'm more satisfied. We always, we always want a little bit more. And rules aren't bad, but the problem with rules is they have little power to change a person's life. That's why Paul, writing to so many of the people in his, his, li- in his letters, explains that the rules in the Christian faith are like a, a teacher teaching a child. The rules are helpful for the child, but the child doesn't understand the meaning of the rules until they grow older and realize that the rules are there for their own good, to protect them. But once we're an adult, we see the rules for what they are. Not that they're bad, but that they're a means to an end. One commenter writing about this letter talks about it's easy to get around special regulations, rules. We are masters at finagling our way around rules to get what we want. Some of us are better than others. I can tell you some people who are really good at it. I'm not talking about anybody in the congregation here. He says it's far less easy to get around so comprehensive a statement of Christian duty as this verse supplies. In the New Testament and the Old Testament alike, it is insisted that our relation to God embraces and controls the whole of life. Not only those occasions which are sometimes described as religious in a narrow sense of the world. In other words, when we come to apply Scripture in all of life, it changes not just what we do, but why we do it. Realizing that just doing a little bit more or getting a little bit more of something that may be a good thing will never satisfy us apart from the deep, abiding relationship that we have with God himself and that also overflows into our relationships with others. Same commentator writes this, even, even uh, <clears throat> can I do it? Picking up a bit mid-sentence, the right course of action may not be unambiguously clear, but such questions honestly faced will commonly provide sure ethical guidance than special regulations may do. Forgive me, I read that a little bit out of order, but here's the point that he's making that I want you to see. Oftentimes, we don't apply Scripture to all of life because we have tried applying a part of it to a part of life, and we find that it didn't work. We read a verse, we do it, we say, ah, it didn't work for me. We go on, we don't pay attention to that verse again. The difficult part of applying a knowledge of God to all of life is applying wisdom to that knowledge. God's word can sometimes say the exactly opposite things right in a row. And yet wisdom is understanding how to apply the whole of redemptive history, the whole of God's word in a particular situation that you are finding yourself in now. And when we know God and his word thoroughly, we are able to do that better. Now, 
It's a whole nother sermon on how to do that. I just want you to see how some of the things in life keep us from, uh, how some of the things that we've experienced in life keep us from entering into all of life with this knowledge. Second point, second point of this is that we do everything in the name of Jesus. Now, in the name of Jesus, most of you know that historically to do something in somebody's name, especially in this time in history, an ambassador or a regent or somebody acting on behalf of a king or somebody else has authority to act on their behalf. It's a trusted person, not just as an advisor to the king, but as somebody who can make decisions on the spot on behalf of the king. That's a lot of trust. And that is what Jesus has given to us. He's called us his ambassadors. He's called us his agents. He's called us his co-kings, jointly ruling with him. And he's called us to act in his name. Now, there are many ways that we can abuse that name. Here's one. We use the name to get our own purposes. We all know people who name drop. Oh, yeah, you know that. So, oh, yeah, it gives me more credit. I can use somebody's name. Say, well, I don't do that with Jesus. But one thing that is very dangerous and prevalent in Christian cultures is to speak of God's calling on our life or God telling me to do something in a way that is impossible to engage. Now, God calls us, gifts us, calls us to particular places and particular things. When God calls us to something, we are to stay in it. The best example is marriage. When God calls and unites two people together, he says, let no person put that asunder. Let no person get, away, get, get in the way of that. When God calls a person to a work, a ministry, it is a sure call. It doesn't necessarily mean that the person is going to be successful in that thing. Oftentimes, God called his prophets to what would appear to be unsuccessful, radically unsuccessful missions. Even his pastors and teachers oftentimes are called into things that are things that aren't appearing fruitful. Doesn't mean the person necessarily needs to stay in those things if God calls them to something else. But God's calling is a significant thing. And when we say, well, God told me to do this thing, we shut down any kind of collaboration, conversation with others that may be helpful in discerning, that usually is helpful in discerning what God's true calling is for us. How did we talk about that last week? Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Remember that if you were here last week, Paul used the same language earlier in the letter in chapter 1 to speak of his own ministry of teaching and correcting, teaching and admonishing, same thing, to the Colossians. But now here he applies it to each person in the congregation, each member of the congregation, saying that we all have a role to teach and to correct one another in wisdom, knowing when to say the right thing is, the, is a good principle and good practice, and that's part of our understanding when God's calling us to do something. If you use the language, God is telling me to do this. God is calling me to do this. Apply the wisdom of this passage and seek counsel from others. 
God's call is affirmed both from God, a sense that we, we get from the Holy Spirit and from his word and also from the wisdom of other godly counselors around us. Just one practical way that we can use the name of Jesus in a right way and in a wrong way. Now, of course, we can also just grossly misrepresent Jesus. Say we, we are coming in the name of Jesus, but not be in the name of Jesus at all. That's what the false teachers in Colossae were doing. But what does it mean to come in the name of Jesus in a true sense of the word? And again, again, Henry Nouwen is really helpful this in this way. And this is his thesis of his, of his whole series of lectures there. He says, to come in the name of Jesus, a Christian leader, a Christian leader who comes in the name of Jesus is one who is led, who is willing to be led. Are you willing to be led by Jesus? Jesus tells a story. The gospel writers tell a story of Jesus' interaction with a Roman soldier who was in charge of a hundred soldiers, a centurion. He had great authority, especially in the region he was in. A hundred soldiers could contain a, a large region. He was an important figure in the Roman army. The Roman centurion comes to Jesus and asks for something from him. And Jesus says, why do you ask? And the centurion recognizes that, that Jesus is one with authority. Jesus commends the centurion for his language because he describes himself as one who not only has great authority over a hundred troops, but one who is under authority. I tell them where to go, but somebody else tells me where to go. In the same way, now in his saying, if we want to be influential in this world as Christians and come in the name of Jesus, we need to come as those who are led fully by Jesus. Let me read a longer passage from now in here. He says, without solid theological reflection, future leaders will be little more than pseudo-psychologists, pseudo-sociologists, pseudo-social workers. They will think of themselves as enablers, facilitators, role models, father or mother figures, big brothers or big sisters, and so on, and thus join the countless men and women who make a living by trying to help their fellow human beings cope with the stresses and strains of everyday living. But that has little to do with Christian leadership because the Christian leader thinks, speaks, and acts in the name of Jesus, who came to free humanity from the power of death and open the way to eternal life. To be such a leader, it is essential to be able to discern from moment to moment how God acts in human history and how the personal, communal, national and international events that occur during our lives can make us more and more sensitive to the ways in which we are led to the cross and through the cross 
to the resurrection. I can't tell you how many times I can identify with Nowen wanting to solve people's problems, the world's problems. He talks about going to Lima, Peru and wishing he could solve the, the hunger problems in the ghettos there. But what God is calling us to do first and foremost as Christians is to lead others to the cross. But did you pick up on this significant point he makes? And that is that those things outside of our lives, those things around us, the personal, the communal, the national, the international events, instead of moving us further away from Christ, isolating, isolating us further in life, can and should enable us to engage life through and by the power of the cross and the resurrection more and more every day. When you read the news, do you see the relevance of the cross and Jesus' resurrection in those events around us? When you go through the personal interaction you have in life and see those, how it impacts the community around us, do you see with gospel-colored lenses how our life as a Christian leader is being one who is led by Jesus fully has a relevance in life and has a powerful stance in life that is very different than the, what the world would promote as a power. I want to bring this to a close just looking at the topic of Thanksgiving. And why giving thanks is such a central thing to having a posture that is able to engage the world around us with a power that comes from being led by Christ and a power that is able to transform the world. He says, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now don't miss the last two words there. Through him is a significant thing. In Christ, through Christ, all of these things are happening by Christ, through Christ, as Christ is, as our agent. It's not insignificant that he chooses to say that we are to give thanks to God the Father through Jesus Christ. It helps us to understand our relationship with God the Father and more significantly, the role Jesus plays in our giving thanks. When we pray to God, we pray in the name of Jesus. And by saying that, we are saying, Jesus, hear our prayers and perfect them, improve them. You know far better than I do what I need right now. You hear my praise and you magnify it a million times over. When we pray to God the Father, we pray through a mediator that is Jesus. And that gives us a confidence that we can come with childish gibberish and still that prayer has a resounding voice of confidence like the best baritone singer you can ever imagine. And so when we give thanks to God, we do it through Jesus, and it is amplified. It is amplified and perfected. We never come to God the Father except through Jesus. But he's talking about a particular type of prayer right here, and that is giving thanks. And I want to ask you, do you does your prayer life, does your prayer life involve significant thanks to God? Or is it filled, filled more with petitions? Now, it's fine to ask God for things for yourself, 
for other people. God wants us to do it. It is good and pleasing to God when we recognize that all things come through him, from him. So we go to him to ask him. But your prayer life needs to begin by giving thanks. And here's, here's what giving thanks does to us as individuals. It changes the whole posture of how we approach God and how we approach life. I want to look at the opposite of thankfulness to help us to understand how damaging it is in our lives. It's the opposite of thankfulness. It's a grumbling. It's a complaining. <coughs> it's a constant wanting what we don't have. It's a powerful motivator. And yet, it puts us in a posture that is deeply alienating and isolating. It puts us in a posture that we are not able to enjoy other people's company, much less God's, because we're not sure if the other people really have our best interests in mind. Now, don't think you're the first people ever to be prone to grumbling or complaining. Don't think you're the first Christians to be prone to that or the followers of God to be prone to that. You can look through all Scripture and find significant examples of God's people grumbling in the wilderness after God had rescued them out of slavery, saying, can't you just send us back? The food was better there. The people, once they had been given land, they were not satisfied with God as their king. They wanted a king with the nations. They were prone to grumbling, wanting something different. The kings of Israel and Judah almost entirely, one after another, turned to other nations because they weren't satisfied with God. They grumbled. They complained. If grumbling and complaining is a central part of our life, it blocks us. It blocks us in a powerful way from experiencing true love from other people. It certainly blocks us in a powerful way from experiencing God's love for us. And it's like a dam that keeps us from being able to extend that love to other people. A grumbling and complaining is so close to covetousness and envy. We, we want what we don't have. We are thankful for what we do have. But I want to encourage us all to go this week and just think about and catch yourself in the times that you grumble and complain and catch yourself in times where you're covetousness and, and envious of, of other covetous and envious of other people. And I want you to think about making a practice of making gestures of gratitude toward other people, probably first, toward other people first, because it's a very tangible type of thing. And then apply that to your prayer life. One of the things I found most helpful in marriage counseling over the last few months, I've mentioned this to a number of you, so you, you, you're hearing the same thing, I know, is a researcher on marriage called, named John Gottman. I believe he's Jewish. He's uh, not coming from a Christian perspective, but his findings, from what I have understood, are not hostile to the Christian faith. There's observations on who, what happens in marriages that are healthy and what happens in marriages that are unhealthy. What are the characteristics of the two? 
And at the top of the list is what he calls is the positive to negative affect ratio of a relationship. He says in marriages that are healthy, the positive to negative affect ratio in a relationship is about five positive to every one negative interaction. He says in marriages that are unhealthy, and by the way, most, almost entirely, 90-something percent of marriages that he qualifies as unhealthy eventually lead to divorce. Um, he says the positive to negative affect ratio is more like 0.8. So it's, it's not even like five to one negative to one. It's just slightly more negative than positive. But, but here's the point. Is that those negative things stay with us far longer. Both when we express them to other people and when we hear them from other people. Why does Paul over and over emphasize giving thanks to God? I think part of it is to to emphasize the significance of having that positive affect in our relationship with God. It builds up the relationship instead of tearing it down. How many times in Scripture does God remind us of His positive affect toward us when we were not deserving of it? And by the way, don't take the message of the gospel and think you have to sit in your sackcloth and ashes forever and that somehow is the right posture to be in as a Christian. For we should be sorrowful for our sin for a season, but we should always be reminded that when Jesus comes and enters our life and gives us a righteousness that is not ours, he makes us loved and lovable. And we need to live into that truth We need to live into that truth more and more every day. Even more, even more than we need to try to go back and make things right. I'm not saying it's not a place for forgiveness and repentance. God calls us to repentance over and over again. But he calls us to forgive those who repent to us. He calls us to exercise that same type of positive affect with one another in our forgiveness of one another. He calls us to own our sin and to understand how fully it has been forgiven. When we give thanks to God, we realize this position that God has put us in as believers in a way that empowers us to live into this life in our relationships, inside the church, inside our family, but even more so, or even more powerfully, significantly, in a way that we often don't hear with the community around us, with the culture around us, in a way that transforms and changes people. Now and says, this is the way that Christians will change the world. And I don't have to look far, you don't have to look far at the number of Christian teachers who have become massive names, who have fallen in awful ways in recent years. And just look at how, how they were doing things in, in the name of Jesus or in their own name. To the glory of God or to their own glory. God is glorified when we are led by him. 
when we give thanks through Jesus and we give all of our life to living all that life in the name of Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Pray with me. Father, thank you that you have taught and led us. Jesus, that you lead us and help us to come into humble submission to your leadership. That we would not hide away certain areas of our life, but that we would give control of all of those things to you. And that we would see lives transformed in ourselves, in our church, in our families, in our city, in our nation, and in this whole world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.